Well, I'm sure that all of us have ways that we waste time. Maybe you do that by scrolling on social media. I'm outing myself, but one of the ways that I frequently waste my time is by watching explanation videos on YouTube. And sadly, these videos usually deal with Star Wars and comic book movies. And if you've never seen any of these videos, that's okay. Don't waste your time watching them. Don't get sucked into the black hole of explanation videos. But for the sake of context, these videos are usually trying to explain things that go unanswered in the movies they're addressing. And so this could be because of a plot hole. If you've never heard that term, it just means an inconsistency in the movie's story. It could also be because the makers of the movie decide to leave something in the plot open-ended so that they can address it in a sequel. But regardless of what it is, these things drive me insane. Uh, after I walk out of the movie theater, all I want to do is understand what I just saw. I want it to make sense. And so I usually look up one of these videos to help me make sense of the movie. And I know that sounds pretty nerdy, but I'm sure you do the same thing in one way or another. Maybe you've read a book and you've spent hours trying to comprehend what it means. Maybe you've looked up something on like Wikipedia or SparkNotes to try to explain it. Or maybe you've done this after watching your favorite sport. Maybe a call was made by the referee that you didn't agree with. Maybe you didn't understand why it was made. And so you might debate this with your friends. You might watch hours of ESPN to try to understand the call. And this is all fun when it comes to entertainment. But it can be deeply troubling when it comes to the deep things in life. It can be agonizing when things don't make sense. And so maybe you've felt this over the past couple weeks with the coronavirus. You read the news. You see your friends post about it on social media. You don't know what to do with all the information. It's hard to know what's true or embellished or maybe even false. And all you want is for everything to make sense. Maybe you felt this when you've read a difficult passage of Scripture. It might teach something about God that maybe you're not comfortable with, maybe you've never heard it before. And you read the passage and you go, can that really be true? And so it can be agonizing when things don't make sense. And so we see this same theme in our text this morning. In it, we're going to see the prophet Habakkuk wrestling with questions about God's judgment. It doesn't make sense to him. And so if you have your Bibles, open with me to the book of Habakkuk. It's a little bit past the middle point of your Bible. It's sandwiched between Nahum and Zephaniah. Uh, And if you're new to our church and you don't have a Bible, usually I'd say to take one of the pew Bibles in front of you. Uh, But you can actually just search it on Google. You can just search Habakkuk and you should be able to find it. We're going to be in the English Standard Version. uh, So make sure to look that up as well. Um, But read along with me. We're going to be starting in chapter 1, verse 12. We're going to read all the way to the end of chapter 2. So Habakkuk 1, starting in verse 12. It says, 
Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with a net. He gathers them into his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them, he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watchpost and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. So not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will spoil, be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on inequity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts the people's labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? 
a metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. The last time we were in Habakkuk was about a month ago. So if you missed it, you can find that on our YouTube page or Spotify or uh, iTunes. But if you, you were here, you'll remember that we covered the first 11 verses of the book. And we established that this book was written by the prophet Habakkuk. He probably wrote it during the reign of King Jehoiakim. And during this time, the nation of Judah had been very corrupt. Habakkuk was grieved by this, and he went to God asking why he wasn't doing anything about it. And God responds to Habakkuk by letting him know that he's already doing something about it. He's raising up the Chaldeans to judge Judah. And as you can see in verses 5 through 11, these Chaldeans, they're a vicious nation that uses violence to take over any nation in their path. And so this brings us to our text this morning. Here's my sermon in a sentence. If you're taking notes, you're going to want to write this down. It says this, God doesn't overlook evil. The prideful will be judged, but the righteous will live by faith. So again, let me just say that one more time. God doesn't overlook evil. The prideful will be judged, but the righteous will live by faith. And so we're going to see in chapter 1, verse 12, through chapter 2, verse 1, we're going to see the question of God's justice. So again, we're going to see the question of God's justice. And then in verse 2 through 20, we're going to see the answer of God's justice. So again, we've got the, the question of God's justice, and then we've got the answer of God's justice. And so let's look at that first point, the question of God's justice. So first we're going to see in Habakkuk, we're going to see Habakkuk's question in chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. And then we'll see Habakkuk wait in chapter 2, verse 1. So look at verses 12 and 13 with me. We can see that Habakkuk asks a rhetorical question in verse 12. He asks, are you not from everlasting? This term everlasting means from the front. It's saying that God is from the beginning. He's always existed and he will always exist. God is eternal. And Habakkuk knows this is true. He's read the prophet Isaiah's words from about 100 years before. This is from Isaiah 40, verse 28. It says this. This is our call to worship as well. It's the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. So we can see here Habakkuk has good theology. He knows about God's nature and character. Yet this everlasting God that he's talking about, 
isn't a distant God. He's Habakkuk's God. And so we can see this when verse 12 says, O Lord, my God, my Holy One. Notice that possessive language that Habakkuk is using. He uses God's covenant name, Yahweh. This is his personal name. And we can see this in the English because the word Lord is in all capital letters. So whenever you see this in the Old Testament, it's pointing to the use of God's name, Yahweh. And so this is why Habakkuk can say, O Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. Yahweh, the everlasting God, is Habakkuk's God, and Habakkuk is part of God's people, Israelites. And so because of this, he can go on to say, we shall not die. And so Habakkuk understands that God has made a covenant. He's made a promise to his people. His promise is that he will preserve them and be their God. But yet the Israelites and what we're seeing in this text in Judah, in the southern kingdom, they've been disobedient to God. And so God's going to remove them from the land. And so even though he's going to judge them for their disobedience, God has promised to preserve a remnant of those in Judah that have faith. Yet notice in the next part of verse 12 that it says, O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. Well, who's them? As we mentioned earlier, this is the Chaldeans. Or you might also know them by the name of the Babylonians. So they swallow up everything in their path. Yet Yahweh has sovereignly ordained for the Chaldeans to judge Judah. He's established the Chaldeans for reproof. He's going to correct Judah for their continued disobedience. And so as we move into verse 13, we can see that Habakkuk is confused. His everlasting God who is covenanted with his people, seemingly going to let all of Judah get swallowed up by the even more wicked Chaldeans. This is why he goes on to say in verse 13, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Notice that Habakkuk says that God has purer eyes. What Habakkuk is trying to say is that God is ethically pure. He's morally pure. This is why John 1, uh, or 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. There isn't an ounce of sin in God. He's holy. He's pure. And this is why Habakkuk says that God can't see evil and he cannot look at wrong. Because God is pure, he shouldn't put up with evil. And yet it seems like God's putting up with evil. So the text goes on to say that God idly looks at traitors and remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. And so Habakkuk is confused. How can God, who is pure, let someone as wicked as the Chaldeans take over Judah? 
You see, God using other nations to judge his people isn't a new concept in the scriptures. We've even seen this frequently in our study in Isaiah. But Habakkuk helps us acknowledge that this concept is difficult for us to understand. It's hard for us to acknowledge how a good God can use the wicked Chaldeans in this way. And so you might be reading this passage and ask, isn't God love? How could he do something like this? Well, we can all learn from Habakkuk when we're tempted to doubt God's judgment. We often treat God as if he's just some bigger and better version of us. We often don't think of him as holy and that he's separate from his creation. We often treat him like he's a man, but we fail to recognize that he is infinite, eternal spirit. He's not bound by space and time like we are. He created space and time. And his ways are not our ways. Yet we ask questions of him as if he's common, as if he's just some other man. This isn't so with Habakkuk. He knows what's true about God. He knows what the the Scriptures teach about God's nature and character. Yet this is why he's confused. How can the everlasting God ordain this? How can God judge Judah yet put up with the wicked Chaldeans? And so we see in these next verses that these wicked Chaldeans, we see what they're like. And Habakkuk's going to use a metaphor to do this. And this metaphor displays the wickedness of the Chaldeans. So look with me at verses 14 through 17. We can see in verse 14 that Habakkuk is using a simile. He says that God has made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He's saying that people are numerous and they populate the land like fish populate the sea. Yet when it comes to the Chaldeans, they scoop up people in cities like a fisherman who scoops up fish and crawling things. And this is what we see in the following verse. Look at the verbs this verse is using. It says, He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. And so this might make you think of those fishing shows that show fishermen dropping these giant nets down into the sea and they scoop up hundreds of fish and then they drop them onto the boat. And it's an amazing sight to see just what they can, what they're able to accomplish. Yet remember, our text is using metaphorical language. These people that are being brought, dragged and drugged and gathered, they're being, these are people. These are those who have been made in the image of God. They're being netted up and dropped on the deck like fish. Because of this, the Chaldeans rejoiced and were glad. They found joy in what they were doing because they slaughtered others and have taken over many nations. They loved oppressing others for their own gain. They don't just rejoice in their conquest. Verse 16 says that they make sacrifices to their nets and they make 
offerings to their dragnet. This is, this is worship language. They worship what they can do with their own hands. This is what we even saw earlier in verse 11, which says that their own might is their God. They worship their might. And they do this because their conquests make them rich. The text says, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. And so you might think this sounds ludicrous, but how often have you made or done something and thought, man, I'm pretty good. The praise and blessing, or maybe even, maybe even you've received wealth for the things that you've done and you feel justified in those things. And you're tempted in that moment to love what you've made or done more than God. You're tempted to love the gift more than the giver. And while our sin might look different than the Chaldeans, the same heart of pride is there. All of us worship what we love most. And the Chaldeans loved wealth and power, and they were willing to do whatever it takes to get it. I mean, you even see in Genesis that they're willing to build a giant tower. And yet Habakkuk ends this section asking another question. Verse 17 says, Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? And Habakkuk's wondering if God's going to do something about the Chaldeans. Is God going to let the Chaldeans swallow up every nation? Will God overlook their injustice forever? And so again, Habakkuk is struggling to reconcile how his God could allow this to happen. And so this brings us to our second subpoint. We're going to see Habakkuk wait. So look with me at chapter 2, verse 1. Habakkuk has finished asking God his questions, and he's now waiting for God to respond. You probably know what that's like. You've probably had to wait for someone to respond to you and you've asked a question. So this is what Habakkuk is doing. He's waiting for the Lord to respond. And so the text says, I will take my stand at the watch post and station myself on the tower. What Habakkuk is saying here is that he's, he's like a watchman. And so a watchman is someone who stands on the wall of a city and he watches for invading armies. And so the prophet Ezekiel was called to a similar task in Ezekiel 3.17. It says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. And so like watchmen, the prophets of Israel were supposed to look out for a word from the Lord. They were supposed to deliver it to the people. And Habakkuk's looking out for the Lord's response to his complaint. He's looking for a word of good news. And he needs the Lord to answer him and to help him understand the Lord's plan. And so there will be times in all of our lives 
where the will of God won't make sense to us. This could happen maybe as we read and study God's word, read passages that we don't understand. This could happen as we look at the way that God has sovereignly arranged our circumstances. You might be even asking this today because of the coronavirus. Some of us have had our schools closed down. We've lost jobs or we've lost money on investments due to the stock market. Some of us have been stuck in our homes for days on end. We pray to God and we ask, God, why have you ordained and so we like Habakkuk are waiting on the Lord to make sense of what he's planned but praise be to God that we have verse 2 it says and the Lord answered me we have a God who speaks through his word and he isn't silent like the idols of the nations he answers Habakkuk And so in verses 2 through 20, we're going to see the answer of God's judgment. And so in verses 2 through 4, we see God's message. And then in verses 5 through 20, we're going to see God's pronouncement. So we have God's message, God's pronouncement. So let's look at God's message starting in verse 2. Again, we see in verse 2 that God answers Habakkuk. We've established that Habakkuk is a watchman. He's looking for the word to deliver a word so that he can bring it to the people. And this is what we see in the Lord's response. He tells Habakkuk to write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. The word vision here means divine communication. God's telling Habakkuk things about the future that only God knew and could know beforehand. He's telling Habakkuk about future judgment. And Habakkuk is commanded to record this vision in such a way that it can be understood by the people. He's told to make it plain so that it can be read easily. Some of your translations might say that. And this message is going to be good news to the faithful in Judah. But what we'll also see is that what is being prophesied won't happen immediately. The text says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God's saying that they're going to have to wait. While the Chaldeans are going to take them over in 586 BC, God isn't going to let the Chaldeans rule forever. But the faithful are going to have to wait almost 50 years for their reign to end. And yet God is true to his word though. The text says that it it will not lie. And we know this from history because the Babylonians were taken over by the Persians in 539 BC. The reign didn't last forever. Yet we also need to remember that God's also not asking them to wait in easy circumstances. They're going to be exiled from the promised land to live in a foreign nation. They'll live in poor conditions. They'll be oppressed and mistreated by the peoples and authorities. Yet God is calling the faithful in Judah to wait. 
So this brings us to verse 4. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. When the text says his soul, it's referring to the king of Babylon. This is King Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember him from the book of Daniel. But this really isn't just referring to him. He's, he's being used here to personify the pride of all of the Babylonians. And so notice that the text says that he's puffed up. His soul has become like a, like a pride air balloon. And it's saying that he's full of pride. And so this means that he has an excessively high opinion of himself. And because of this, his soul isn't upright. It's crooked. And because of his inflated ego, he's willing to oppress and kill others for his own personal gain. And so we can see here that the pride of the Chaldeans is being contrasted with the righteous. The righteous don't live off of an inflated ego. They're to live by their faith. And so why is God telling this to Habakkuk and the faithful in Judah? He's telling them that they'll live by trusting in what God has promised. They need to have faith. And this isn't a new concept when Habakkuk comes on the scene. You might remember that God promised Abram in Genesis 15. God tells Abram that his offspring will be numerous like the stars. And the text goes on to say that Abram believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Sound familiar? Abraham had faith and was declared righteous. And this isn't, so again, this isn't a new concept in Habakkuk's day. God has always called his people to place their faith in him. And God didn't just call Habakkuk and the faithful of his day to a one and done faith either. This is a continuous call to believe in God's promises. Even though they're going to be sent into exile, they need to trust God's word. Even though they couldn't totally make sense of God's justice, they needed to cling to his promises for life. God wanted Habakkuk to know that the wicked Chaldeans would be judged for their pride. Their wickedness wouldn't last forever. And God is telling Habakkuk that those who are filled with pride, those who cling to their self-righteousness, will die. But those who live by faith will live. They'll be declared righteous. And today we're called to do the same. We also need to put our faith in the promises of God for righteousness. Yet there's a clarity that we have today that Habakkuk didn't have. Today we know that all of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. He's the eternal son of God who took on flesh to save sinners like you and me. He lived the perfect life of faithfulness that you, Habakkuk, Abraham, and I couldn't live. Yet he died the death that you and I deserved. You see, you and I have more in common with the Babylonians than we want to admit. We love our pride. It tastes good to us. This is why we get defensive when others challenge us. 
and why we're willing to manipulate others to get what we want, and why we love the works of our hands so much. We want others to praise and worship us for what we've done. So we can see that we're all sinners. We deserve a judgment that's worse than what Judah or the Chaldeans received on earth. We deserve eternal judgment because we have sinned against an eternal God. And this is why Jesus, the eternal God who took on flesh, needed to die for you and me. He was the only one who could exhaust the eternal wrath of God. And so he died and was buried. Yet the scriptures teach us that he didn't stay dead. He was raised by the Father to new life. And so friends, Jesus Christ the righteous is alive this very day. And he's sitting at the Father's right hand. And if you place your faith in him, his righteousness will be your righteousness. And so you see Habakkuk 2, 4 is massive in scope. That's why we see it quoted three times in the New Testament. The first time we see it is in Romans 1.17. The apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk when he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul sees Habakkuk 2.4 as the foundation for the gospel, this good news about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's saying that righteousness is given to those who have a genuine faith. This is further clarified in Paul's second use of Habakkuk 2.4 in Galatians 3.10. He says, Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Again, Righteousness is given to those who have a genuine, spirit-produced faith. It's not found in what we do. You can't obey the law enough to make yourself righteous. Only Jesus could perfectly obey the law. And that's why we need to put our faith in Him. So the prideful person trusts in their own righteousness. But the one who has faith trusts in Christ's righteousness. Yet we would be wrong to think that this is somehow disconnected from the perseverance that Habakkuk and the faithful were called to. A saving faith leads to a persevering faith. Those who God declares righteous in his son will make it to the end. They've been united to him and their faith in Christ will grow and sustain them through the worst of trials and circumstances. This is what we see in the third use of Habakkuk 2.4 in Hebrews 10.38. After quoting Habakkuk, the author of Hebrews says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have and preserve their souls. The author is saying that those who have a saving faith will persevere despite trials and persecution. And he follows this up. In Hebrews chapter 11, with a list of Old Testament saints who have persevered in faith. This chapter is amazing. You should go back and read it later this afternoon. We actually 
in some ways sung this chapter in that song we sung called By Faith. And we see in this chapter that it builds up like a bridge to a worship song. And it finally climaxes with these words in chapter 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, brothers and sisters, Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He endured trials and tribulation when you and I shrunk back. He had joy in his suffering when you and I grumbled about our circumstances. And he finished the race, and he endured to the end. And so, believer you've been united to Christ, you will persevere by faith. You can endure agonizing seasons of waiting because Christ endured the cross. We can endure any circumstance because we know that eternal life with Christ is at the finish line. And we know Him now and we will Enjoy him forever and ever. So this is, this is all God's grace to you. You didn't do anything to earn it. He's given it to you. And so do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that as you're stuck at home because of the coronavirus? Brothers and sisters, no virus... No enemy, no schemes of the evil one can take you from the Father's hand. And this is why we sung these words this morning. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path. For my love, love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Beloved, Christ will hold us fast. And so hold fast to him by faith. Cling to his word by faith. We've seen God's message. Now we're going to see God's pronouncement. Verses 5 through 20. Look with me at verse 5. It says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. And so we see here that the Chaldeans have become drunk on their pride like someone drunk on wine. And so wine here is personified as a traitor, an arrogant man who's never at rest. And he's never at rest because he always wants more. And this is why his greed is as wide as Sheol. If you've never heard that term, it just means the place of the dead. And so his craving 
for what's not his is like Sheol's craving for death. And he never has enough. And because he never has enough, he keeps gathering nations and peoples for himself. His pride truly is a traitor. Why? Because he'll never be satisfied. Yet despite their apparent success, God is going to judge them. And five woes are going to be pronounced against the Chaldeans. And so we see in verse 6 that those who have been swallowed up by the greed of the Chaldeans, well, they're going to taunt them. The Chaldeans will not reign forever. And because they love their pride, everything will be stripped away from them. And so in this first woe, we see that the plunderer will be plundered. Verses 6 through 8 say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them, because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. We see here that the Chaldeans have been heaping what up what isn't their own. They've been stealing from others by loading themselves with pledges like someone who takes on massive amounts of debt. Yet the time is coming when the debt collectors are going to be knocking on the door. And the thousands, maybe even millions of people that they've plundered are going to come and take what was forcefully borrowed. And the nations that they've plundered are going to plunder them. The violence and bloodshed that they've caused others in their plundering will be brought back upon them. And so in our second woe, we see that the secure will no longer be secure. Look at verse 9 through 11. It says, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have fortified your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Notice how their plundering has benefited them. They're seemingly secure from disaster. He sets his nest on high. He's safe from the reach of harm. Yet in their search for security, though, they've brought shame on their house. They've cut off many peoples for their own gain. They've destroyed the lives and houses of others. And they defortified the homes of others to fortify their own homes. Because of their shameful acts, the very architecture they've plundered cries out for justice. It says this, the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. They cry out like Abel's blood on the ground after Cain spilled it. They demand justice against the Chaldeans. And this brings us to our third woe. Their civilization will be replaced by devastation. Starting in verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that 
the people's labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We can see the Chaldeans have built their towns and cities with blood and iniquity. They've used abusive labor practices to construct their civilization. Yet they've done this in vain. Despite all of their labors and weariness, their works will amount to nothing. Their civilization will crumble. And yet this doesn't just pertain to them. All nations that pridefully build their civilizations on wicked practices will fall. And on that day, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. How much of the earth will be covered by the Lord's glory? As much as the waters cover the sea. The whole earth will be filled with his glory on the day of the Lord. And the prideful works of the nations will no longer be remembered. And so this brings us to our fourth woe. What we'll see in verses 15 through 17 is that their glory will be turned to shame. Read with me. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. And so we see this again. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Verse 15 uses a strong metaphor for the Chaldeans' wrath. They're like a man who gets his neighbor drunk to take advantage of them. They humiliated those that they conquered. They brought shame on them for their own personal gain. But since they've brought shame on others, shame will come upon them. And the cup of the Lord's wrath will be poured out on them. And their glory will give way to shame. And the Lord won't just pour out his wrath on them for what they've done to their neighbor. They've also destroyed his creation. They destroyed the forests of Lebanon and their conquests. Many of those famous cedar trees and the animals that dwelt in the forest were destroyed during the the Chaldeans' military campaign. And so God cares about all of his creation. He created it and he owns it. And God isn't going to let the Chaldeans get away with destroying what is rightfully his. And so we come to our last woe in verses 18 through 20. We can see that their idols will be worthless before the Lord. Look at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! And to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. 
And so the Chaldeans were idol worshipers. They worshiped gods of their own creation that reflected their own interests. And a God of our own creation is a worthless God. And this is why Habakkuk says, what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. This is foolishness because its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. So we see here that the, the Chaldeans were fools. They worshiped what they could make with their own hands. And so notice the language in verse 19. The idols are told to awaken and arise, yet they're lifeless. They have no voice and they can't teach. And so again, we too are tempted in our pride to worship what we can create with our own hands. While we might not make wooden idols, we're tempted to love success. We're tempted to love security. We're tempted to love our health more than the one true God. And we, like them, are tempted tempted to take and twist God's good gifts in creation and fashion it into a God of our own choosing. And so, friend, ask yourself, Would you be content in this world if success, security, and health were stripped away from you? Would enjoying Christ and his fellowship be enough? Listen, the Lord isn't like your idols. He's the everlasting fount of life. And he's spoken through his word. And so the triune God is the only one worthy of your worship. And so let all the earth keep silence before him. We craft speechless idols, but the true God leaves everyone speechless. And so friend, if you're not a Christian, turn from your idolatry to Christ. Put your faith in him so that you'll be found righteous on the last day. If you don't, there's a judgment that's coming for you that's worse than these five woes. The eternal wrath of God will be poured out on you forever in hell. And so what idol is worth that judgment? What amount of success or security or health is worth eternal wrath? Friend, turn from your idols and turn to Christ. This is good news. He's able to cleanse you of your sin. He's inviting you to know him and enjoy him. So turn from your sin. Well, what we've seen in these five woes is just a trailer for God's future justice. We've heard Jeff use that term over the past several weeks. And they all point to the day when everyone will be silent before the Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And on that day, he'll wipe away every wicked nation that's like Babylon. And he'll judge them with the word of his mouth. And our enemies, sin, death, and the devil will be no more. 
And every ounce of injustice that has been brought into this world will be made right. Our God won't overlook evil. And while he'll wipe away the nations that oppose him, he'll also wipe away the tears of the faithful. And no longer will we dwell in bodies that are broken by the fall. We'll be raised in incorruptible bodies like Christ's. And we'll know and enjoy fellowship with the Father, Son, and Spirit forever. And so, beloved, I leave you with this. This is a quote from the song Rise Up by Ben Shive. You might know him. He also co-wrote Is He Worthy with Andrew Peterson. And so listen to these lyrics. You're questioning if God will overlook evil. Listen to these lyrics. If a thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not the father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. He will rise up in the end. I know you need a savior. He's patient in his anger. But he will rise up in the end. So believer, if you're tempted to doubt God's justice, remember that your father won't overlook evil. He'll not let the reign of sin, death, and the devil last forever. Their days are numbered. And so cling to God's word today. Faith that everything he said will come to pass.